Yes, indeed, we are back in the 13 Realms, and we have a very special guest, Mitch Gonzalez. He is a master of visual effects, and he has been across so many incredible titles. But we are going to get right to his story as soon as we cover the next chapter of the Kingdom of Dwarves legend. Let's jump right in. Chapter 6 Council with a King Even with an entire flask's worth of smolder whiskey in his guts, numbing his pain and filling him with fiery bravado, Grog still found the trip to the Burgermaster's manor on the back of Thetham's giant ram to be an exquisitely uncomfortable experience. Thetham urged the beast onwards at a terrifying pace, it bleated and snorted, and its hooves clattered on the cobblestones in a way that would have given any dwarf a headache, let alone one who'd recently been cracked on the noggin with a dirty great mace. Grog sat behind Thetham, clinging tightly to the full moon warrior, and muttering a constant stream of curses as his injured buttock rose, fell, and hit the hard leather saddle with each rhythmic gallop. Between the frantic movement, the whiskey, and the pounding headache, Grog also found himself fighting down waves of nausea. He decided that if he did need to throw up, he would do so all over the back of Thetham, who was shouting encouragement to the speeding ram and clearly enjoying himself. Luckily for both dwarves, the Grand Stone Manor belonging to Longdale's Burgermaster was located on the southern outskirts of the town, not too far from Grog's shack as the crow flies, or even as the unpleasantly bouncy ram gallops. Thetham slowed his mount to a trot as they approached the gates to the property. A small contingent of grim-faced kingsguards were stationed there. They let Thetham pass without a word. He guided the ram right up to the front of the huge house and dismounted. You need help? Thetham asked, extending a hand towards Grog. Nope, Grog said, wincing as he swung his left leg over the ram's back and slid to the ground beside Thetham. I need a pipe. Thetham grinned, secured the reins of his mount to a pole, and began climbing the wide staircase which led to the front door. I noticed that the Burgermaster's bloody mansion didn't get burned down last night, Grug said as he followed Thetham up the steps. Neither did yours, Thetham countered. Grug tried to think of a clever retort. It hurt his head, and he came up blank, so he contented himself with growling a little and swearing under his breath. Once inside the house... Grog followed Thetham past more guards and into a large, opulent room. It had low bookshelves all along one wall, high windows, and a variety of fancy furniture, including two round tables. One of these was covered with platters of food, the other with an enormous map. Around this map stood three very important dwarves. The Burgermaster of Longdale, Broughton Gruntlog, 
and Gelgrim Brewblade, the king of Realm Two. There was also a fierce-looking dwarf with black battle paint, smeared in thick stripes under his eyes, standing by the windows, looking out over the lawns. Thetham! roared the king, raising his hands in greeting. You're back! <laughs> and you bring with you the great Maugrog Ironheart, scourge of mountain harpies, slayer of marauding giants, and trusted general of our beloved and much-missed High King Owen. If it had been anyone other than a king mentioning Owen and calling Grog his trusted general, Grog would probably have punched them in the face. But it was a king, so Grog just dipped his head in the merest of bows and mumbled, uh, Your Majesty. Come in, you two, come in. The king's hands were wildly animated as he gestured for Grog and Thetham to join them at the large table. Come and help us save the kingdom. Wait! The king froze, clearly struck by a sudden and important thought. Food! Drink! You must be starving! Come and have some of this spread. He walked over to the other table, his titanium chainmail clinking softly. You can't save the kingdom on an empty stomach, can you? Here, there's cold meats, relish, cheese, breads, fruits, and uh, even some pastries here. All straight from the personal pantry of our gracious host. The Burgomaster, who was even rounder than Grog, and had gold rings adorning his elaborately groomed blonde beard, smiled a smarmy, simpering smile, and bowed with a flourish. Everything that is mine is yours, your grace. Grog headed for the food, making sure to give Broughton a look that said, You're a bastard for dragging me into this, while the king was busy pointing out different sorts of mustard. And this one is particularly hot, the king was saying. Make sure to have a pint of ale handy if you want to try this one. Grog cleared his throat. <clears throat> uh, actually, your majesty... I sustained a few injuries in last night's battle, and Thetham here did promise me that there'd be some medicine here to help out with the pain. Absolutely, said the king, standing up straight and adjusting the silver link crown, which had fallen over his dark grey eyebrows. He stepped towards Grog, reached out, and placed gentle fingertips on either side of Grog's head. Then he tilted it left and right, while he ran his eyes over the blood-stained bandages. Again, if this had been any regular dwarf, Grog would have told them to bugger off. He may have even thrown a knee to the ghoulies for good measure. But as it was, he tolerated the king inspecting him like a mother might inspect a hurt child. Luckily, they seem to have caught you right on the thickest part of the skull. The king said. A bit lower, and you'd be in serious trouble. Oh, I think you'll find that Maugrog is extremely thick-skulled, your highness, Broughton said, not looking up from the map. It would take more than a clumsily wielded mace to get through that impenetrable head of his. The burgomaster chuckled. Grug considered throwing a cold chicken at the pompous bureaucrat but settled on a filthy look. 
No, no, law keeper, the king chided. We're all friends here, and we're all meeting with a common goal. So eat up, Malgrog, and you too, Thetham. He turned to the burgomaster. Have your staff fetch the general everything he may need to dull the pain of those nasty wounds. Then we can get down to business. A short while later, after Grog had smoked enough Nissen weed to sedate a sword-toothed dire bear and eaten five large custard nut pastries, he found himself leaning unsteadily against the map-covered table with a mug of whiskey in his hand trying very hard to follow the intense conversation being held by the other dwarves. Raven reports are coming in constantly, Vroten was saying. The most recent attacks have taken place here, here, and here. He stabbed at various places on the map with his unbroken arm. Grog attempted, with a profound lack of success, to follow Broughton's movements through blurry, squinted eyes. Realms 10 and 11 report heavy casualties, said the dwarf with the battle paint, who seemed to be some kind of military leader. They were hit hard two nights ago, and even harder last night. I predict a full-scale evacuation from the outer realms to the inner realms within the next few days, if these attacks keep up. They just don't have the dwarves out there to withstand these onslaughts. It's like the fog all over again, the burgomaster said, wringing his hands dramatically. Only this time the mountains aren't saving us, said the king. These buggers are suddenly everywhere, outer and inner realms. Which is why I was saying my theory is the most likely, Bruton said. And I say it's impossible said the military dwarf. I agree with Major Hammerbuckle, said the burgomaster. The Underrealms completely caved in nearly fifty years ago. None of those revolting mining dwarves could have survived the earthquake. Gods, we barely survived it even on the surface. And even if some of them had survived, where have they been for the last fifty years? What have they been doing, and how, in the name of the Ancient Ones, have they stayed alive without food, water, warmth, or sunlight all this time? It's just not possible. I know it sounds unlikely, said Broughton, but I think all the alternatives that have been offered are even more preposterous. Why is the thought of a secret necromantic cult living among us so very preposterous? asked the Burgomaster. At least I'm talking about real dwarves, not some ghosts of the past suddenly springing up out of the ground. Grog wasn't exactly sure what the others were talking about, but he thought that he covered this up well by sipping his whiskey in an extremely thoughtful manner and nodding from time to time. Maybe they came from beyond the outer mountains, said Thetham. Personally, I don't see why it matters. What matters is that we beat every last one of them into a bloody pulp. He reached back and patted the head of his billy club. Grog's eyes lingered on the grotesque weapon, which was a mistake, since the skeletal ram caught him looking and gave him a funny look back. It's looking at me. 
Grog held out hope for a moment that he just thought those words and not blurted them out loud. But all the other dwarves turned and stared at him. Grog bought himself some time by taking a long, pensive sip of whiskey. Then he pointed at the map. It's looking bad to me. He shook his head. Looking very, very bad. You're right, Malgrog, said the king, placing a hand on Grog's shoulder. This is a crisis, and it's only going to get worse. That's why we need your help. You want me to find the Faithbound? You were a member of the Northern Mountain Battalion for a good many years, yes? Grog nodded. There are few dwarves who've ever come into contact with the Faithbound, let alone dwarves who'd be able to find their way back up to them if they needed to. Broden says that you'd be one of the dwarves that could. Grog glared at Broden. Oh, he did, did he? He did. The king reached down, took the mug from Grog's hand, and drank the remaining whiskey in one swallow. He then shook the mug in the general direction of the burgomaster, who scurried forward to take it and refill it. These fuckers are coming for our homes, Grog, the king said, putting an arm around Grog's shoulders. They're killing families. Worse, they're killing them and then bringing them back to life as unholy ghouls. I've seen, Grog mumbled. They'll come again, my Grog, said the king turning to look Grog squarely in the eyes. All across the Thirteen Realms, they'll come back. And you know better than most how badly the ranks of our warriors were thinned by the War of Fog. If there was any statement that could have snapped Grog temporarily out of his whiskey and weed-induced stupor, it was this. Of course I knew! He shouted. Broughton stiffened. Feetham even took a meaningful step towards Grog, but the king just smiled a kindly smile and smoothed his dark grey beard. No one blames you for what happened, General. There's not a dwarf alive or dead that could have claimed victory that day. The fact that there were any survivors is a testament to your leadership. Grog looked down at the floor. The sounds of battle echoed through his mind. The sounds of dwarves screaming, panicking, crying out for help. The sounds of dwarves and Kavina dying by the thousands. The sounds of his own cowardly voice bellowing the words that no dwarven general had ever uttered in battle. Run. Retreat. Ha! <laughs> Thank you, my good dwarf, said the king. Grog looked up to see the monarch taking an almost full mug of smolder whiskey from the burgomaster. He took a generous swig, breathed out a loud <sighs> of hot whiskey breath, and offered the mug to Grog. Grog took the vessel, stared at the potent golden liquid sloshing around inside it, and found, to his amazement, that he didn't actually feel like any more. You think the Faithbound will actually come? he asked. The king's ebony cloak rose and fell as he shrugged. I certainly hope so, my friend. High King Ruinthor has personally written messages to be sent to all four priories. 
I believe he's offered the Archons any number of enticing reasons to bring their paladins down from the mountaintops to help out with this mess. If they refuse, I'm afraid we might be seriously fucked. If only we knew what these dark dwarves wanted, Major Hammerbuckle said. If only we could reason or negotiate with them. They, they want revenge, Grog said as he looked out the window at the sinking sun and lengthening shadows. Nothing more, nothing less. Despite his inebriation, Grog was still aware enough to notice the energy in the room shift. When he turned back to look at the other dwarves, they were all staring at him with furrowed brows. What are you talking about? Broughton asked. What do you mean, revenge? Revenge for what? Why do you say that? Grog held up a hand to try and calm the exasperated lawkeeper. I don't know what for. It's what one of those mad bastards said last night. You talk with him? Major Hammerbuckle exploded, his face reddening. When exactly were you planning on sharing this minor fucking detail? I just shared it. We've had eight prisoners under interrogation for hours on end. The Major was shaking so much that his azure cap was in danger of toppling from his head. We haven't gotten so much as a word out of him, but you... You actually had yourself a nice little chat with one of these bastards last night. And you didn't even think to tell anyone. I didn't really think of it till just now, said Grug. I don't know whether you noticed, but I had my head half caved in last night. He turned to face the king. I'm sorry, your highness, I just forgot. How in the endless pit of darkness... Did you get one of them to talk? The king asked, reaching absently for Grog's mug and taking another hefty swig. Well, I think he was certain I was about to die. But then this dire forge maniac came along. Grog nodded at Bruton and kind of ruined his plans. And what else did he say? Nothing, really. Just that they were going to raise me up to be one of their undead things. It was a pretty short conversation. Uh, speaking of undead things, sire, Fethim said, I think it's really time for us to be heading back to the Citadel. We're only a few hours away from nightfall. <sighs> I'd better go, the king said, handing the mug back to Grog. My faithful bodyguard frets like a first-time mother if he thinks I'm putting myself in any danger. Thethim was indeed looking nervously back and forth between the king and the setting sun, his white-painted face twitching with agitation. Mm, but what do we make of this revelation? The burgomaster asked. These invaders are here for revenge, but what does that mean? Do they simply intend to wipe us all out? Destroy every village and town? Turn every last one of us into one of those undead abominations? A shiver ran across Grog's shoulders. He had the feeling that this was exactly what the invading dwarves had in mind. We don't have time right now to discuss it further, Thethim said, an edge of anger creeping into his voice. 
I'm taking the king back to the Citadel. Grog's heading north right now. And you'd better turn your mind towards the defence of Longdale for tonight. I shall aid you with that, Burgomaster, Broughton said. And if we make it through the night alive, I'll leave in the morning for Realm One, there to consult with the High King. Thank you, Lawkeeper, said the Burgomaster, whose eyes were bulging with fear. Wait a second, Grog said, as his sluggish brain finally caught up with the implications of Thetham's words. What do you mean, heading north right now? Do you mean like... Grog gestured vaguely around the room. Like now? Would you rather stay in Longdale tonight to help fight off another attack? Asked Major Hammerbuckle. The Southern Realm support that the first night of attacks there were exploratory strikes. The second night was far worse. The quicker you leave, my friend, the king said, grabbing Grog by both shoulders and making him spill his whiskey. The quicker you'll bring back a legion of armor-plated paladins who could help us drive these evil bastards back to wherever the fuck they came from. We need to travel fast, said Major Hammerbuckle. So I've put together only a small party. They're preparing for the expedition not far from here. And don't worry, General. I know you're hurt. So we've got all manner of medicine packed and ready for use if need be. I'm not a general anymore, Grog mumbled, before forgetting that he didn't want any more whiskey, and taking several scalding swallows. No, but you will be our guide, the Major said. You do know the way to the Northern Priory, yes? Eh, Grog said into his mug. Pretty much. He knows, Bruton said. There's few dwarves that know these mountains better than Grog. Why aren't you coming with me? Grog pointed an unsteady finger at Bruton. Because I've got a broken arm, you stupid bastard. Not the best for mountain climbing. Grog searched for a retort, but the king spoke first. We're all set then? May the ancient ones be with us all. Strength and fortitude, dwarves! Everyone echoed back the king's words, strength and fortitude, except for Grog, who was too busy grabbing pastries from the table of food. We have packed provisions now, Grog, Major Hammerbuckle said through gritted teeth. You got any of these? Grog held up the last of the custard nut pastries. The Major closed his eyes, clearly trying to fight down his annoyance. Thetham, Grog said. Blade Blunter is in the saddlebag on your goat. We'll get it on the way out, said Thetham. All the dwarves began moving towards the door. Malgrog, said the king, putting an arm around his shoulders and holding out a small scroll with his other hand. I entrust this to you. Oh no, Grog tried to wave the scroll away with his pastry-covered fingers. Give it to Major Hammer Broken. Hammer Buckle, came the angry correction from behind Grog. No, I want you to take it, the king said, his voice suddenly grave and somber. Owen trusted you for a reason, and I trust you 
too. Grog's first impulse was to shove the king away from himself, but instead he bit down on his lips so hard that he tasted blood. You need to bring back those faith-born bastards, Malgrog. The king pressed the scroll into Grog's chest. You won't let us down, will you? Grog felt quite certain that he would let everyone down. In fact, placing one foot in front of the other and getting from the food table to the door was proving a bit of a struggle. However, he didn't think this information would inspire confidence in the king. So he just nodded, grunted, finished his mug of whiskey, and accepted the scroll. Along with the hopes and expectations of every dwarf in all the thirteen realms. Another chapter down, and that means another great interview. This time around, we have an incredible person in visualization and animation, and that is Mitch Gonzalez. I'm not going to ruin the, the resume of you or anything like that because you have an extensive experience and a lot of stuff. But first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So we, we got to jump right to it. I mean, just looking at all the different titles and things that you've done in, in your career, obviously you've done a lot of Marvel stuff, a lot of big picture stuff, a lot of video game stuff, but we got to go to the very beginning. How did this world really come up for you? Specifically for me, I was I was one of the rare kids that in high school that kind of knew exactly what he wanted to do right away. So it was, um, when I saw Jurassic Park, I was right at that age where I was old enough to know it wasn't real. And it just blew me away of how did someone create this? Like, what? how is this even possible? And so in in high school, I was like just finishing up high school. And right around that time the film came out, I literally knew this was something I wanted to be involved in. And so I immediately decided to go into animation. I didn't even know what it was called. It was more like visual effects at the time. And I was more interested in creating the actual movement of, of the dinosaurs. And so that's what kind of drew me into the industry was literally uh, Jurassic Park. So from from that point on, I was just hitting the ground 100 miles an hour trying to figure out to, how to break into that industry. And all along the way, it was just figuring out which, you know, which school to get into. And so I researched that and I grew up in Minnesota, so there wasn't a lot of options there. I did go to a couple of their kind of technical schools that involved computer animation. So that was the early like 2000s. So that's kind of when animation started to kind of become more of a, a major at the time. And so I, you know, did what I could in Minnesota, but, you know, realized really quickly I needed to figure out to be in a position where I wasn't teaching my teachers. And so it was, it was difficult because a lot of schools weren't really offering it, but there was a few, a handful of schools, obviously, uh, Disney had a, a lot of school, you know, a program, but more for 2D. And they were kind of shifting uh, into more of the 3D as well. But so there was basically Academy of Art San Francisco and Ringling College of Art and Design. And so 
I chose Ringling mostly because Florida was just an awesome place to go to school. <laughs> and I, I don't know, there was a, it was kind of a disconnect with San Francisco. So I ended up in Ring, at Ringling. That's actually where I met Evan, which was my first connection with Evan. We went to the same uh, college. He was a, yeah, I think he was a junior when I came in. So I came in as a, you know, un, non-traditional freshman, a couple of years experience. I had a, an associate's degree in computer animation and visual effects. So I really wanted to position myself the best I could in the industry. So I went to the best school. I didn't really care what the cost was, even though it was insane. Right. But it was worth it. And for me in that in that situation. So while I was actually in school, most programs have like a, a senior thesis that you put together. And it's kind of like a showcase of your work in, in a short film that you create. And so while doing my short film, I connected and networked with a teacher who had been in the industry, got me connected into the industry while in my senior year. So I was actually working in the industry remotely way before all this remote stuff, work from home started, obviously. So it was, it was really cool. It was like one of the biggest opportunities that I had at college. And so I just jumped on it. And it was working on the Wiley Coyote Roadrunner shorts. Mm. So that was my first project and there's doing animation and that was with a company called real effects and they're based out of dallas dallas texas so i was in florida working my senior year on my thesis while working part-time on these uh short films so it was it was really awesome to have that opportunity and by the time i was graduating i already had industry experience under my belt so it was really really cool but i didn't stop i didn't stop there um i kind of knew that was really that was really awesome. I really loved animation, but my heart was always set on getting into more of the live action realistic animation. Right. So, you know, obviously the Jurassic Park influence, but you know, huge passionate fan for, you know, the Lord of the Rings and the Star Wars and more of that epic kind of animation style. So I knew I was gonna eventually end up in, in California. And so I when I graduated, I had applied to a few places. And thankfully, this is kind of one of those little blessings in disguise is where I didn't get something right away. It was a slower, kind of more competitive time in the industry to get into an actual job. And it was very interesting because I was, I felt like I was a little bit ahead in terms of my graduating class uh, with having the experience and you know, having a degree previously. And so a lot of that, you know, I I knew wasn't going to do as much as just straight up networking and then who you know in the industry. So I knew I had to get out to California. Thankfully, I had a buddy who lived out here and was already working out here. And so I actually just came, drove out here from, from basically from Florida, straight to California and just started job hunting and I found myself in the independent contractor role. And so I really kind of built a good network of working with smaller companies. And the reason why it was a, a big blessing in disguise of was that I learned so much in that first year of working in California. It was like jumping from one job to the next to the next and really kind of seeing how a production works, how your part as an artist works uh, in the industry. And so I kind of just learned 
and paid attention to what was, you know, how this was all kind of run. And it seemed like every show was different. Every studio was different and your teams were constantly changing. So it was really hard to, you know, get, get a good, uh, I guess, kind of that feeling that you're just settled. Everything was always kind of moving. And I, I didn't mind that actually. I liked that kind of flexibility to be able to go from one project to the next. And so the, the projects that I did enjoy, I tried to stay with that company and studio for as long as I could. And one of the first bigger studios that I worked with was Pixel Mondo. And another, you know, great experience working on films like Fast Five, Hugo, and Red Tails. Uh, there was, you know, a handful of films there that were really great experiences. Hugo won uh, Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. But the, you know, I only, I only worked on like maybe like three or four shots in the whole film. Right. And these were, these were like, uh, kind of like pickup shots, like background shots that were just replacing the green screen because the whole film was basically screen, green screen. And so, um, you know, just doing a, a lot of work, but over a long period of time. So it was a little chiller show. And I don't feel like I contributed as much as like, um, you know, say like later projects that I worked on. With that, did the, the the whole team get the award or, or how does that work when there's so many hands on, on basically all of the animation? How does that work? Usually it's the VFX supervisor or the main key VFX leads that are on, on the project. And so in that case, it was the, the VFX supervisor that was on that, uh, Ben Grossman, who actually went on to start his own studio after that project, I believe. It was his kind of time in the industry obviously to to shine and i think all of the visual effects went out of came from pixel mondo so they didn't farm anything out or kind of like contract anything out to other studios if they did it wasn't like major it was the majority of all of the visual effects were done with pixel mondo so that was cool because it was like you know if you worked for a massive studio like ilm industrial light magic that we're responsible for the all the main key visual effects. Obviously, now majority of movies just need the bandwidth and other studios to help out on that. But having the opportunity to work with the main studio was was pretty cool. That you know lasts for a while, and it was it was great to work with that studio. I ended up kind of still focusing on animation at the time but more so now you could kind of tell the films getting into like you know the ones that i mentioned the fast five and red tails those are more you know live action not not full 3d characters or 3d animation stuff it's more realistic so i ended up getting into another studio that was uh, called prologue films and they actually were kind of specialized in you know, title sequences actually. And they kind of hit it off big. Uh, the main owner of the studio, Kyle Cooper, was the one who did the opening sequence to seven. Mm -hmm. And so that was what really propelled that studio. But it was a, a great studio to get a whole bunch of different types of projects and not only title sequences or, you know, little short stories within a, in a movie. That was, that was what was really cool. It's like you get little sequences of the film. And those really became like your own little part of the film. So more influence could come into that. Um, it was really kind of a studio that was entrusting 
you know, like prologue films to do their thing and really bring a lot of influence into the the film, which was really, really cool. And so one of those projects I got to work on was Noah. And Noah was a one of those passion projects. It wasn't something I was searching for or looking for, but the way that it landed on me was I ended up kind of getting into supervising at the time. I had just finished Jack the Giant Slayer. And just because of the experience and working on that film for so long, I kind of, you know, jumped into a lead role and then lead into supervising. And supervising at that studio was really cool because I kind of spent 50% of the time working on the box as an artist and 50% of the time just managing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of liked that mix because it was, it was, you, you basically, long story short, is like you got to put your fingerprints on almost everything right? by leading teams and, you know, kind of dictating the way that looks of certain scenes and characters. And so it was a really, really cool opportunity to work on Noah because because I was supervising, I was able to work directly with Ari Handel, which was the writer, basically the number two on the film. And next to, you know, obviously Darren Aronofsky directing the film, but he would he would come into the studio and sit with us and make sure that, you know, a lot of the artwork that we're producing is you know the the his vision essentially and you know kind of what darren wants as well super he was a really smart dude smart guy smart writer um had a i think he had like a science background too because he was really informed they wanted to try to make it as scientific as possible while still you know bending having that artistic license to to make things work but what was really awesome about it is they gave us this task and the task was this seven day creation sequence and to be able to tell this story over billions of years, essentially in flickers of frames. And it was kind of like a time lapse that was constantly evolving and moving. And so while things were evolving, like the creature or the landscape and, you know, the space and the landscape and earth and, and then eventually, you know, creatures and animals, we had to to make that all work without causing people to have seizures. So right. yeah. it was it was a really interesting project. And it was kind of one of those passion projects, like I mentioned, where you don't, it's like the best of both worlds, where you get to work directly with the, with the main cre- key creative, which was Ari at the time, and really in, you know, bring the influence to that part of the story to life. And, you know, have that, have the, actual creation of that so seeing that on the big screen at the end um and basically handing that off for finals and seeing that you know final then almost matching exactly what we had you know done over and over and over again with all these uh, iterations was was really rewarding one of the most rewarding actually projects that i've been involved with mostly because of that so that that was really cool and actually Another interesting thing about that is like because of that project, I found myself more passionate towards what I'm doing now today. And that's actually supervising more on the uh, visualization side. So there's pre-visualization and then there's post-visualization right. and everything in between to, to get there. And pre is just all of the, you know, taking the script and essentially just adding the, the camera to it and the, the 3d nature of everything to it so it's kind of like the the blueprint for 3d and so we t- or we take storyboards and sometimes if they're provided or but essentially a script converted into 
this like 3D world. So cameras are moving, characters are kind of blocked out. And then most of the time that previs is either passed on to Finals House to do the full CG or for it to be shot and filmed. And once it's shot, they would be matching kind of what we did in the previs world and then move it to post-vis. And then the post-vis would essentially kind of set up all of the, the visual effects stuff and you'd layer that in. You know, it's it's kind of it's the whole process from beginning script all the way to final shot. So I enjoyed that way more than just animating a character that was the same character over and over and over again in the film. Right. So it was again like it felt more like I was influencing as opposed to getting an eye blink just right or something on a, on a 3D character. So not not that there's anything wrong with that it was just a preference right yeah, so it's, it's just a preference. preference yep so is and i the, you know the things that i really enjoy about that is the whole creative process having the opportunity to create things that have never been done before kind of comes out in those you know situations basically being next to the main key creatives on the, on the film and so that you know fast forward now like um man, over 10 years uh, in the industry and been kind of more involved in some of the bigger, bigger films, blockbuster films, you know, like the Marvel films. There's a few that I've worked on that still haven't come out, but one that most recently came out was Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness came out. Yeah, I haven't and, seen it yet. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Marvel guy, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's on the list. Within the next couple of weeks, I'm going to watch it. But when nice. when you when you look at different projects, right? You talked about Noah, and you had a very large imprint on that film uh, because you were able to do that whole sequence. Uh, and then you look at the the larger Marvel movies that have thousands and thousands of people on the credits. Uh, what what kind of imprint can you have at at that level? Like, what what, what did you do for say like Avengers Endgame or something like that? So though those are it's it's very interesting because you can have a lot of influence like for another marvel film that's that's coming out it was announced so i guess i could say it um, we are involved with thor love and thunder oh nice so so that one i actually supervised i co-supervised on and that one i actually had a major influence on that um and you know led a massive team and that one was one of those larger projects but um, other films where I'm just kind of helping out on or kind of an, uh, would be more classified as like an artist on or a senior artist, you know, th- those films, you're kind of just re- more responsible for key shots or um, parts of sequences or, you know, chunks of shots. So it, it varies from project to project. So that's what's kind of interesting is that you could spend a long time on one shot or one sequence or a few, you know, a few shots and make up a sequence and the whole thing could just be scrapped. But you started the process and you actually helped, you know, carry that, you know, from what it is now. So for example, like Endgame, there was a lot of that. There's a lot of shots that I worked on that, that film. I came in more actually kind of towards the end of the film when they were actually doing the main battle at the end mm-hmm. um, and worked on a few of the key shots and uh, there's you know 
countless hours that were just thrown away in terms of trying new things and doing different things or tweaked things here and there. And, you know, so the, all of that work, you know, led the film to where it's at now, but no one would know, you know, like the amount of work that goes in that just ends up being scrapped. And, you know, if you have like one or two shots that are key shots or trailer shots, those are kind of cool because you see those first. It's like, oh, I did all of the basically mapped that entire shot out and, you know, you get to see it in a trailer. So that that's that's pretty cool. But it's it's definitely project based. So you could work on a project for years like I did on Thor for it was almost a year I worked on Thor and have massive influence. And then there's other projects where I worked on for, you know, a few weeks or a couple months and it's still having an impact, but maybe not as quite a big of impact as I had, you know, would have wanted on the film. Mm -hmm. But it's, but it's interesting because sometimes you, you know, like you get in, you get into the project, you help out, you do a few shots, you do a few key sequences, and then you're out and you're on to the next project and it kind of shakes things up and keeps you, uh, you know, on your toes and, and flexible and, and, you know, curious to wanting more. And so it, it helps definitely eliminate you kind of getting into that burnout of working on the same thing over and over because, you know, pluses and minuses everything. And that would be one of them is like you could sit there and on the grind and see the whole project through, you know, or just kind of get in on a few cool, you know, shots and, or sequence and, and then head on to the next project. So that it's it, it varies, you know, per project. So And, and I wonder... You know, I, I assume there's like a, a degree of professionalism that just kind of comes along with the job because I can see as a, a creative, you, you want to see the, the work that you do use. And sometimes I would write or sometimes I would create something and it just not really meet the intended usage or maybe not the taste of, of the project owner. Is that something that you had to cultivate over time or, or were you just like, hey, it's a part of the game? You know, they're going to use some things and there some things they're not. But I'm sure that's something that other artists and creatives struggle with through throughout their their careers. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's always that. But, you know, we I think one of the pluses to going to, to college is they really ingrain that into us in terms of just a critique. And so that that was really awesome because basically getting into the industry, you were already is kind of already expected is like, don't don't you know, marry anything for too long because it's, you know, it could essentially one higher up executive could just say, nah, we don't, we can't, we're not going to do this. And then it's like all those, all that work, you know, and if it breaks your heart, it's going to just completely detract, you know, deflate you from wanting to continue to pursue that creativeness. I would lie to say that if something came up and, and, you know, got cut and I was really passionate about it, it wouldn't, you know, hurt a little, but you, you know, over just with experience, you come, you know, just to get used to it. I mean, I, I literally just like a few couple of weeks ago, we had a screening for a Marvel, big Marvel film that I've on now that been on for maybe six or seven months. And I had worked on the sequence for about at least a month, maybe a month and a half. Really hard, you know, because mm-hmm. it was working with straight with again, like a creative on it to get this just right and multiple iterations and it going pretty far. And we just, I just found out maybe like a week or two weeks ago that that whole sequence was being cut because of the film is too long. So, mm. <laughs> and so 
honestly, I was, it was probably the quickest recovery that I'd ever had of something major being cut in terms of like, yeah, you know, I get it, you know, like that, that quick, you know, and it, it, it's, it's hard, but at the same time, you're, you, there's no, nothing in your power that you can do. It's, uh, it was for reasons that are completely out of your control. And so you just move on and there's other things, you know, other projects that come up and other parts of the film that come up that you can still, you know, cause, you know, make a big impact on. So, but yeah, it's, it, it's always challenging, but that just comes with experience. You know, the more time, the more time that you spend in the industry, the more you kind of get this, you know, thicker skin and then you don't even, I don't even, you don't even have skin anymore. So it's so <laughs> thick. It's just like a meat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just keep going. Pure armor. <laughs> yeah. Just grinding through. When it comes to making the decision whether to do something physically, like whether it's a building that's being blown up or maybe a crash or something like that versus doing it digitally, uh, what what is the decision logic that kind of goes into it? And who makes that call? Is it the director or is it more of a collaborative decision to to go a certain direction? Usually it falls on like the the lead or VFX supervisor in most cases and um, he'll have his opinion, but it could actually just come down to budget. So it really doesn't, you know, there's no one person making a decision. It's just like, do we have the money for a yes or no? And if if they do, then, you know, they will go for it. But most cases it's the VFX supervisor. And um, if it's something that is very specific that they need to spend a lot more time on making you know a certain concept that is very specific in terms of the look of something like if we use that example of the building and it's something that's very you know that the director is envisioning a very specific way that the building is falling apart or they want this part to fall apart first and this part that obviously would go to to visual effects if it's something that they don't have you know time for either to build it practically like i think every vfx supervisor has the same thing it's funny how they majority of them are like we i want to do everything practical i'm a practical guy i don't like if i can do it without VFX, but it's it you know every of course everyone wants to do that that's like that's like the the go-to because it, it's more realistic right but it's it doesn't always look good right so there's you know if if you can if you can do it and it looks good great but it's whatever gets the job done and nowadays like visual effects is just just winning that that race in terms of making stuff look good and then also get it done efficiently um and cost effective so you don't have to you know blow up whole sets to get the look that you want and so you can you there's a lot of a lot of cool things you can do practically but if visual effects gets it done and gets it done cheaper then that's probably the route it's gonna go there you have it you talked a, a little bit about Noah and how you, you really liked that process because you're a part of a, a larger sequence within the film and you got to work with the creative, which is really cool. What is the smallest yet proudest thing that you've done in, in your career where, you know, if you blink, you might miss it, but whatever you did, like really, really spoke to you and maybe even makes you smile every time you see or, or hear about it. Mm, that's a tough one. Going back to the Noah thing, I guess I, I got a couple of those, but going back to the Noah thing, there was something at the at the very end of that sequence, there's a lens flare that um, kind of is like a, a light effect. That's kind of like a bokeh light effect that creates this little 
rainbow halo mm-hmm. and so i was like oh that'd be cool to kind of wrap this sequence up where it's kind of echoing you know noah and the ark and you had at the end of the movie you know like i didn't know anything about anything uh, else in terms of what the film looked like because this was pretty early on when we were doing this sequence <clears throat> and so i just thought i was like hey maybe if i do some kind of lens effect at the end as the the, the tree in the garden comes up and it creates this little rainbow halo effect on the lens that'd be kind of cool and I, I like just threw it in there it was it was it was thought out by me and like i had to make sure it looked just right and not too corny and it it just it's kind of just stayed in there because it was the last thing that happened Mm -hmm. but i found out later of course like that's that's what made it into the final i found out later though they were like dude that was awesome that was an ingenious idea and that was that was something that was like oh that's that's really cool like you guys thought that it would have been cool to know that yeah yeah when i put it in there but (laughs) i find out way later um but that was that was one of those things where it's like um very small thing right very small detail but it was um you know that's one of those things that you see and you're just like oh that's cool i made it in there but yeah there's there's a handful of things there's a a big chunk on uh extraction um when that movie uh was we were i was responsible for kind of helping wrap up this epic oneer that was like, I don't know, it's like 11 minute one or shot that's obviously just connected with a whole bunch of other kind of seam, seam together. Right. Um, and so there's, I was tasked with this last part of the sequence to make work. And there's a couple places in there where I, I totally, you know, just cheated it in terms of bringing it together to connect from one shot to the next. And it was specifically in this part where the, this um, truck is driving and the camera has to like, pan you know kind of get past the characters and they jump out the car so it was like part of it was cg part of it was you know live action and there's parts where i'm just like well we're just gonna you know use this windshield smudge and just like block the characters for like four frames and it's just enough to where it's like where it's just enough to where you can't tell there's a cg takeover that that's that obvious and it it just worked just worked well and it uh you know got through and it went to final and i was, saw it on the big screen i was like yes yeah that is so cool that is awesome you know there are people that are listening right now they might be in the creative space already or they're looking to get into the creative space and obviously with with all that you've done you've had a lot of lessons along the way but what is that one particular lesson that you would give to a younger version of yourself as, as they embark on, on that journey uh, towards their, their career? It's, it's going to be a, maybe a little cliche, but it's the same, same thing that I keep hearing over and over from a lot of people in industry now is that hard work just really, really pays off. It's, it's, it's really just being positioned the right place at the right time. And so, I mean, it's the timing of everything. And so you could pour your heart and soul into things and not get noticed for a long period of time. But once you do, it just, you know, things can explode for you in terms of what you thought was possible. I never thought, you know, I'd be getting into this level of creative in the industry this, you know, quickly, I guess, in terms of my career. And so it, it really is just patience and timing and just keep doing what you love because the that passion you know, I kind of kept telling myself that. So it'd be the same thing I kind of encourage others is that 
if you just keep following that passion, eventually it's going to, it's going to be seen um, by someone and that someone, you know, could be, you know, the next big director. So if, if you get in, you know, in the industry, it's kind of just that these, these first little obstacles you got to handle and it's, you know, breaking in the industry, such a big one. And that's uh, just hard work and just hard work, uh, you know, doing the, doing the same thing over and over that might go unlooked or unnoticed or unappreciated many times, but it's just sticking with it and sticking with it. And eventually, man, you just hit it. And that, you know, you're, you, before you know it, it's like your, your dreams are literally happening right before your eyes. And you, you're just like, oh my gosh, like, um, you know, I'm doing what I love and I'm yeah. in the industry and it's, you know, it's everything that I've, you know, wanted. And it's, you know, that, that's actually gets you to that, the next project and the next challenge. And so it's just kind of, it's just that it's, uh, keep going and keep, keep sticking with it, working hard. Outstanding advice, Mitch. Really appreciate the time at coming on to the show and, and chopping it up with me for the folks out there that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible projects that you have been working on. What are the best ways for people to do that? I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to stay connected on social media for me. And if you, I know that IMDB isn't always up to date, but that's kind of my hit list of, of projects that I've worked on um, in the in the past few years. So um, keeping up to date with those two would be the way to go. Outstanding. I'll be sure to drop that stuff in the show notes. Uh, and with that, uh, that's all we have. Thanks, Mitch, for the time. And we'll see everyone in the next episode.